So what I still today find fascinating is that we have at our fingertips information on banking, investment, in all sorts of ways, regardless of how sophisticated you are or not. But for health information, it just isn't there. There are some newer innovations in Apple Health that you can pull information, but largely you as a patient or I as a patient spend most of my time transcribing, translating, communicating to clinicians what my prior medical history is, what it isn't. Hey, wait, I already had that test. And so the health information exchanges, they're largely focused at helping steward that information to the various healthcare providers so that they can ensure that when you show up, there's more of an understanding about who you are and get you the the services and supports that you need. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yopala, and I go by KP. I'm the CEO and co-founder of In On Health. In today's episode, we speak with Carrie Pycoach, director of the Office of eHealth Innovation in the state of Colorado. In today's episode, we learn not just about the exciting digital health innovations that are bringing healthcare to rural America and for underserved populations, but also the importance of collaboration amongst state agencies and partners to ensure that that work serves everybody. I hope you enjoy. Today on the In On Health podcast series, we have Carrie Pycoach. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. You're doing really important work at the intersection of public policy and technology innovation to support all Coloradans for their health and well-being. Can you tell me a bit about how someone ends up in that kind of job? I mean, some people may not even know that there's an office of e-health innovation in our state. So how did you make your way in your career trajectory into public service and tech innovation? Great question. I often ask myself that same question every day. How did I get here? Uh, prior to working in state government, I work primarily in healthcare, startups, tech, health systems, education, not for profit, but all focused on serving others in some capacity and innovation. Originally, I started down the path of pre medicine, but realized that I wanted to make a bigger impact than just one on one patient um, care. So I completed my bachelor's of science and then started working in the field of organ and tissue donation for a number of years. And I saw firsthand the impact of health decisions, equity, all of that. Uh, From there, you know, I had some amazing leaders that I got to work with. Many of you may know of Nita Mosby-Tyler, who's known for equity efforts nationally and just really shaking things up. Um, got a a chance to see how to transform organizations in that capacity, and then returned, you know, after working 24-hour call shifts on organ and tissue donation, I couldn't couldn't hack at that. (laughs) Um, So I returned to graduate school and received my MBA in health administration and master's of science in managing organizations. Uh, And you're probably wondering, how did you end up in health tech? And one of my courses was a health IT course, and it was right at the the juncture of when the Obama administration had released massive amounts of funding, the the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and Health Information Technology Act, and just thought, let's give this a go and started working in, in startups and ended up 
really loving the field. I work for a company called The Breakaway Group, who eventually got out, bought out by Xerox and other companies, but they focused on kind of speed to proficiency with doctors using technology. So we created these workflow simulations where we would show them how to use their electronic health records, various other applications the quickest way possible so that they didn't have to spend a ton of time reading and learning how to use those systems. And then from there, um, once Xerox bought out the breakaway group, the work kind of died down a bit because of the trajectory of the funding. And so it took some time out to work in the family business and saw an opportunity with state government, with uh, the Hickenlooper administration to be the state health IT coordinator and thought, what a, what a wonderful opportunity and so I, I ended up landing that opportunity with the, the governor's office as the state HIT coordinator, and then have stayed on and moved into the role. HIT uh, for people listening. Oh in. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Land of acronyms. <laughs> Health IT coordinator. Very good. Yeah, and so it's been an honor to work for that administration, and it's a pleasure to work with the Polis and Primavera administration to serve all Coloradans in this field that I'm, I'm really passionate Excellent. about. Excellent. And did you grow up in Colorado? I did. I, I grew up in North North Denver, Adams County area. Okay. Okay. So Colorado is, is home for you and it's uh, so it must feel nice to be now doing this type of work uh, in a place that you grew up in and have come to a, a really love, frankly. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So first generation Colorado can't can't claim any further back than that um, as well as second generation on my dad's side American or U.S. citizen okay okay very good so tell me this so you're running the office of e-health innovation and before the COVID-19 pandemic tell me about some of the things that were priorities and that as you looked at how technology could really help people around their healthcare needs. And in a prior podcast, we talked to Colorado's lieutenant governor, and your office is an office within the lieutenant governor's office. So maybe you can tell us a bit about some of those pre-pandemic priorities, and then we can start to talk about, you know, how those priorities evolved after. Absolutely. And the Office of Health Innovation was created 2015, just for some quick background, through an executive order to establish strategy, policy, and coordinate funding across the state as a neutral entity. So prior to the pandemic, we were very focused on implementing projects, initiatives to fulfill the state health priorities, such as saving people money on health care. Our North Star strategy is called the health IT or the state's health IT roadmap. And so during that time was just working on implementing those projects. Our work is steered by a governor appointed commission, which you are one of our appointed members. So get the pleasure of working with you on that. And the commission at the time not only helped develop this strategy with stakeholders across the state, over a thousand people um, in public and private sector, but helped look at the number of initiatives, there's about 16 of them, and say, out of the time and space that we have, where do we focus? And so the top two initiatives we were working on, and continue to work on today, is advancing health information exchange and data sharing. And then the second one was aligning and advancing care coordination to support what's already going on in communities and try to weave together a thread of common information, common infrastructure and policy where possible. Okay. So maybe um, you could help explain for our listeners 
the focus of the eHealth Innovation Office is an office that's not sitting within, let's say, the Department of Public Health or not sitting in our healthcare policy and financing division, which runs Medicaid and Medicare in the state. Like, how does eHealth Innovation fit into the fabric and or coordinate with other bodies around this type of innovation? Great question. So as the office was established, there was a lot of thinking through that. And so the commission, as it's formed, has representation from each of those agencies. So on the commission, we have a point, pointy from the Department of Public Health and Environment, Healthcare Policy and Financing, Department of Human Services, and our Office of Information Technology, as well as public, or excuse me, private sector individuals from large health systems and um, technologists and other startups. So it's a mix of that representation. But as, is, as established in our executive order, healthcare policy and financing is our fiscal agent. Okay. And so we work very closely with them to make sure that we're maximizing every state dollar we invest. So through the Obama administration, American Recovery Reinvestment Act, um, High Tech Act, excuse me, we receive $9 for every state dollar. So it's very important that we've worked with, with healthcare policy and financing in that regard, and we're continuing to do so with the new federal funding and financing. And for the, for the other agencies, there was thinking, you know, do we embed them? Where do we embed this office? And having them be in a neutral position within the lieutenant governor and governor's office gives them ability to coordinate across the various entities so that it's not seen as a human services project, that it's it's more of a, a neutral project, but that that in, is not a an easy thing. Understood. I mean, it's, uh, and that's part of why I asked, because clearly technological innovation that serves everybody requires coordination. And I think some of what we find in our country is a lot of these different innovations in healthcare are siloed, right? So different departments are doing different things and they don't speak to each other. So we we end up with an inefficient system that's not coordinated. So it sounds like the Office of eHealth Innovation is playing a bit of that coordination role around technological innovation in our state with all these different agencies in the public and private sector. Exactly. Okay, got it. good. So Carrie, maybe one thing you can do for me is describe some of the milestones that you achieved before the pandemic on how these innovations can serve an everyday Coloradan. Great. So, so in terms of key milestones, one of the first major milestones was we could have done anything. How, where do we go? What do we do? And so we developed the state strategy. Seems kind of wonky, but you have to have a, a navigation or a roadmap to know where you can go and you can measure your progress along the way. Okay. So I think one of the, the major milestones was, was coming up with the state strategy in 2017 with endorsement from from top executive leadership, the governor, lieutenant governor, to say it makes important sense to invest in X, Y, and Z and to support this and to coordinate this because at the the end result is that it's better care for people, that it saves time spent running to various other offices, duplicate tests. And so that, that was one of the, the first major milestones for the work. Shortly thereafter, we took that plan to the legislature and they funded a number of initiatives, which was okay. had never had happened before. They're very bold um, initiatives, everything from improving care coordination to 
improving infrastructure for how information flows to individuals okay. in a really technical way. So that that came along. And then as we transition forward, I, I know this is pre-pandemic, this framework and governance structure gave us the agility and flexibility to respond quicker than other states when there was a immediate public health crisis. So one of the things that I, I'm reflecting on as we're kind of emerging past the immediate crisis of the pandemic, but now we're looking at what could we proactively change and look at what was exacerbated early on. We were able, at least in Colorado and through the work through the Office of Health Innovation, to provide immunization information to, for example, the, the state Medicaid office, healthcare policy and financing, so that they could reach out to their members. Uh, these public health information systems are kind of outdated uh, and they're working on it and they're under capacity, but because we had contracts in place, data structures, agreements, a, a culture of collaboration, we've been able to do that. Again, it's the, the tip of the iceberg there with getting that information flowing, but that's just one example is how like this kind of wonky government strategy and work has led to actually helping people get access right. to life-saving uh, immunization. Right. And tell me a bit about, you've talked a lot about data and about health information exchange. I mean, for some people, it may be kind of abstract. Like how does, what does health information exchange mean? Like how does it relate to me and my health information? Or maybe you can kind of do some of that dot connecting of how some of the priorities you've been working on on health information exchange connect to benefiting people. Sure. So what I find, I still today find fascinating is that we have at our fingertips information on banking, investment, in all sorts of ways, mm -hmm. regardless of how sophisticated you are or not. But for health information, it just isn't there. There are some newer innovations in Apple Health that you can pull information, but largely you as a patient or I as a patient spend most of my time transcribing, translating, communicating to clinicians on what my prior medical history is, what it isn't. Hey, wait, I already had that test. And so the health information exchanges, we have two of them in Colorado. They're largely focused at helping steward that information to the various healthcare providers so that they can ensure that when you show up, there's more of an understanding about who you are and get you the, the services and supports that you need. But I, I will say there's a lot of work to do to get people their information timely and in a way that makes sense and that doesn't require you, again, to fill out duplicate paperwork and that you just have it and you're able to share it when and where it's needed. Right. I think many of us experience that. We go to our doctor and it's like every time we go, we're sitting for 15 minutes filling out a paper form again, right? So it's like, it sounds like some of the things you're doing are going to help streamline that in terms of experience. Um, what is, let's say, one of the top challenges with health information exchange that you're working on today? I think one of the, you know, the top challenge is that we're we're trying to catch up to where technology is based on current rules and regulations and interpretations of when and how information is shared. Okay. So for example, for behavioral health information, the policies and rules for that at a federal level were created before the internet. And wow. so we're like trying to squish information sharing into 
rules and regulations that were developed prior to then, they're supposed to be releasing refreshed policy here soon in the next year, but they, you know, all, all signs lead to not holding out for that. And so states are kind of left in a position of what is our policy, how we're going to operationalize that. And so that's a lot of the work that nicely dovetails what the lieutenant governor was talking about. It's, you know, supporting individual and the behavioral health needs, but while kind of managing this very legal data landscape to, to help people. Okay. Interesting. So, so that is actually a policy constraint and not a technology constraint. So sometimes people might think, well, you know, what's that balance? So clearly there's policy changes. We have archaic policy that doesn't facilitate innovation and that has to change. How much of this technological tour do you feel like actually on the technology side, our health information exchange issues are less than on the policy side, for example? Sure. I think that's a bit of both. And in referencing health information exchange as a, a verb, there are legacy systems at the state level, community level that need to be modernized so that they can share information like the banking system. So that mm -hmm. has to happen, as well as standards for sharing information. The One of the biggest things that we're seeing right now is the proliferation of social influences, social determinants of health, screening applications, tools, but none of them broadly share information across regions or platforms. So for that, it's more of the technology is there, the national standards are there, but there may be technical investments or debt that don't align up to the national standards. So it's a bit of a change management, technology enhancement plan to get there, but also looking at the role of the state and playing with, like, do we produce specific standards and hold all vendors accountable? What does this look like? Is this a form of information blocking? How, but, you know, of course, looking at what's best for the, the patient and, and our economy as well. Right. So <laughs> it's a what, balance. Yeah, it's a balance. So one of the things clearly about data in healthcare is the data associated with our health and wellness sits in lots of different pockets. So, you know, on the one hand, we know there's a lot of work to be done in better tracking race and ethnicity data linked to our healthcare data. And that relates to census, but also relates to other things inside of the health system and how they track that. There's also like social determinants of health data, right? Um, and we know that, you know, a lot of hospitals through their existing electronic health record systems are trying to capture better data on social determinants of health. As I know, being an e-health commissioner, there's some work being done on what you're terming, I believe, a social health information exchange, the SHE. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. So the so the concept of a social health information exchange is a flexible ecosystem. It's not one application, not one system to rule them all, but the, the concept is regardless of what application you have or record, you can freely exchange information. So right now we're focused on doing some ground softening and some initial infrastructure building so that you can screen and share that screener. You can refer. So a screener, uh, let me clarify that. So that is determining if somebody has need for housing or food in that regard. So doesn't necessarily flow freely with that. And, and oftentimes 
patients or people don't want to share that with their clinician. So there's right. other ways, patient, consumer, individual application. So how do we share that information? And then downstream, how do we know in that community, what are the food resources? What are the housing resources? And then for the clinician in that ecosystem, knowing like, did they actually, did the patient, the individual actually get those services and supports? And then stepping back and thinking a, a bit more proactive, are there indicators or signs that we could get people with the altruistic intention access to these important things early on, regardless of what they are um, for those individuals? Right. That sounds really interesting. I mean, I haven't heard of many systems like this across the country, but it's clearly a need. So if you combine the work that you're doing with health information exchange, making that data more accessible to patients and at the, on the other hand, the social health information exchange and really thinking about people's context, seems like if over time we can get those two things peaking to each other that we could empower community organizations, health organizations to really serve people better. Exactly. I really see the health information exchanges as the, the roads, the highways, the pipes underneath all of the various Eventually, it's just going to be information exchange mm -hmm. and having the right gating and authorization, whether it's the individual level or the provider level, to share to share that information broadly. Right. So tell me, as, as the COVID-19 pandemic started, how did you see the role of the Office of eHealth Innovation in supporting response to the pandemic? And how did that evolve over time? And what were some of the signature things that you were able to do to, to support our, our state? Being part of the offices of the governor and lieutenant governor, we were called upon pretty quickly to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, especially around telehealth, telemedicine, and take a look at all the, the priorities going on. And so I was actually reassigned to be part of the innovation response team task force, leading the chair for the telehealth work. Okay. Meanwhile, um, my team, my project management office, uh, my pro program manager was leading forward foundational infrastructure projects. We had to put a few of them on pause, especially as they were still early on and stakeholders expressed pretty, pretty loudly to not move forward on X, Y, and Z, as well as did our eHealth Commission on helping us prioritize what we should focus on and why. And out of that, came a number of new initiatives and pivoting. And at that time, we, you know, telehealth, telemedicine, data sharing, making sure that we were connecting as many hospitals and clinics to the exchanges. Okay. Um, over that time, we connected over 64 new health providers, and that's not just one doctor. It's a, a cluster of systems and hospitals and brick-and-mortar clinics, as well as looking at are there, what are those disparities in particular in rural or underserved areas and what can we do to, to focus light? So I think, you know, to recap two major things is pivoting and being agile, agile to focus with the, the governor, lieutenant governor, where we needed to focus and work on telehealth policy, funding projects that perhaps were too greenfield or blue sky that seemed a little too abstract for others to fund. For example, we worked on some projects because there weren't vaccinations. Everyone had masks. So we worked with a company called Kinza to, to work on identifying where there were early outbreaks of 
temperature fluctuations and getting telethermometers out to the public. And that was during a time that there weren't any thermometers at the the, right. the pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. And tell me about um, this concept of digital divide or on the other side of that, thinking about digital inclusion as, you know, the pandemic is playing out. We're in lockdown. Um, we're looking at telehealth opportunities and how to make those more accessible to everybody. Tell me a bit about how you think about digital inclusion and digital health equity. Just what we got to do. Um, early on when we started looking at releasing funds for telehealth to clinicians around the state, one of the things that they expressed needing the funds for was getting individuals access to devices, so laptops, cell phones. We have about 100,000 Coloradans that took the census several years ago uh, that do not have access, and that doesn't count for families, households. So if they're on a Zoom call, if they need to do a, a telehealth visit or other education, there's this tension there. So very supportive of getting um, devices out to people that need them. In fact, 30% of the funding that we had released was all focused on devices for individuals and their families, just so they could do telehealth visits. And then the other piece that we recognize, like the Lieutenant Governor stated, is if there's not broadband or inadequate services, affordability of those internet speeds and devices, we've got to do something. And so we worked with the Office of Broadband and others to get additional funding and support there. And then related to your broader question about digital health equity, I think if people don't know how to navigate systems or care or understand in a way that's culturally relatable and sensitive, that they're just not going to engage. I think, you know, it's everyone assumes in healthcare that you want to engage in the healthcare system, right. but in actuality, you, you don't. You only, it's, it's designed um, for when and how you need it, and it may be too late, and so looking at how you can bridge that gap, and I think there are companies and innovations out there that do a really great job at saying, hey, did you know that you can get access to this immunization? It's, it's this simple, or if you look at this type of diagnostic, so breaking it down in a way that makes sense to people. Mm -hmm. And if you you know, were to share at least one opportunity that you believe, if we think about health equity and digital inclusion, like an opportunity that you think can be transformational for us at this point in time, what would that be? So I think one major opportunity is, is just having the conversation and ensuring that it's part of every state community strategy to make sure that we at least think of, do people have the means to even access phones, cell phones, laptops? Do they understand how to use them? Do we have education? Do we have communication? So really just thinking about what that looks like. And then bigger than that, I think the second one is really looking at policy laws, rules, and seeing are there barriers in place that were created over the last so many years, decades that we have to evolve and change so that it doesn't result in the same poor outcomes or situations perpetually. Great. Um, I ask all my guests this question as a part of our series. Why are you in on health equity? And can you possibly share any personal experiences or moments that made this more than just a job for you? From a health equity perspective, there's a huge opportunity to further enable 
access to healthcare in an affordable and effective way through sharing of information and sharing of proper services and treatments when and where needed. And I think the, you know, the other things to think about is we don't often talk about the impacts that climate has on health and the more timely we can share information with the clinicians and people about the implications of that. For example, if somebody has high blood pressure and it's going to be 120 degrees for the next seven months, what does that look like in their treatment plan? You know, I think we can get pretty tactical about what we can do and what, but I think, you know, if we can be a bit more prescriptive for people, if I look on Instagram and they're bombarding me with advertisements on yoga pants, insulated cups, based on my um, certain profile, why can't we make healthcare as prescriptive so that it's not detrimental or ends up in bankruptcy? On a, I guess on a personal level, why health equity? You know, I think in some stories I hear it takes four, six, eight weeks for families to get access to benefits, whether that's food, housing, mm. in a time that they they need it most. And I think back on my childhood and my family at one point, my, my father is an immigrant, bachelor, or excuse me, master's in, in, in business, but couldn't get a job. And so three young kids education, immigrants, and we ended up on state benefits, but we didn't have months at a time waiting for those benefits. So I have a kind of a special place in my heart for people that just, they need um, support and help in a time. And, you know, the, the family ended up rising up and starting a business and it was, it was time limited. But I think perhaps if certain barriers had been in place that many others experience on a day-to-day basis that we'd probably be. Yeah, it would have been a very different yeah. experience. For I wouldn't you. be here today. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I really appreciate having you on today. Again, um, Carrie Pie Coach, Director of the Office of eHealth Innovation in the state of Colorado. Appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at InOnHealth. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off.